Get to the church blind! Get to the church blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Peyton Jones, and I am here for another uh, edition of Hardcore Church Planner. I know you are too, and that's why you're here. And uh, But what's really cool about this is even though I don't have Pete Mitchell riding shotgun with me anymore, he told me I smelled uh, I have with me a very cool guest. I am really excited. I, I see my guests lined up sometimes and, um, I am super excited to have with me today, Brian Sanders from Tampa underground. And, uh, you may or may not have heard of these guys and what they're doing, but you need to check out tampaunderground.com. And check out what these guys are doing. It's all the things I want to be when I grow up, when I'm not a little wooden boy anymore, and I become a real boy. To me, what these guys have done, this is what it looks like when it starts getting fully formed. I don't know if Brian would think they're fully formed, but he's on here. He's going to talk to you a little bit about his journey and how the Lord's led him and the crazy things that they've been able to do. So, Brian, welcome on to Hardcore Church Planning. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, hey, um, Brian, first thing we normally do is we ask, uh, and I'm going to keep saying we, because I normally lead this with somebody else. <laughs> um, we're, we're having a contest to become the next The royal co-host. we. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it's like the Name the Schumacher's Baby competition from the Gary Shandling show way back when. Um, by the way, he did name them Blue Suede Schumacher, if you're listening and you're a millennial and you're like, I don't even know these names. You're dating yourself, man. I, I, you know, I always date myself. I mean, look at my face, right? I don't, Be proud. I don't dye my proud. beard hairs. I, I, I meet people that dye their beard hairs. It's okay. You know who you are out there. But, uh, but anyways, Brian, um, tell us a little bit about your journey to faith and uh, how you came to know Jesus and what that meant, man, For because you guys have been on a, a cool little ride. Tell us about it. Wow. Um, I don't, it's funny, man. I don't get asked that question much. I have to go way back. You have to go way back. This is spiritual um, show and tell, man. That's, that's what yeah, this is. It's, and it's, you're right. I mean, that's where the journey, I guess, begins for everyone. I, I, it, for me, it was a young life camp. I was um, part of kind of in and out of some little youth group, didn't really understand much, had sort of a broken family. So I was looking for, I don't know, something meaning, whatever. And uh, was befriended by some Young Life people and found myself at a Young Life camp. And I, I think I'd been to church a few times, but it was there I kind of heard the gospel presented. For me, it was like an exchange. There was this offer that you could trade in your life and you could get, I don't know, purpose and a future and whatever salvation meant to me as a 14-year-old kid. Um and I just felt like a, the deal of a century. And I felt like I was I was uh, winning the lottery or something. And I just thought, man, God, if you want this broken life, um, this because I, I didn't get a lot of accolades um, in school. I was sort of a trouble troublemaker. Um, 
I just thought if you'll make that change, that exchange, I'll gladly take it. And I, you know, maybe that's important part of my journey too, because it was a, it was through a parachurch entity, what we call parachurch, which maybe I would now have a problem with. Yeah, agreed. Um, you know, <laughs> like there is no such thing. But uh, nevertheless, I didn't know what the difference between modality and sodality was when I was fourteen. But I knew that this was this thing was sort of happening outside of the church, and these people were were coming to find us, um, and 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 in kind of a contextualized way, presenting Jesus to kids. And still, Young Life is doing that. I mean, I, I, I'll always have love in my heart for that that ministry. And 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 so I, I guess maybe my journey has to start there because I, I find Jesus in a way on the outskirts of church, uh, and then then maybe my real discipleship happens through intervarsity in in the university years. That's where I grow and discover really what it means to follow jesus walk with him and all that but so both those it's parachurch right that's the at least for me and and maybe that is kind of somehow tied into how we've ended up doing church when Mm. we actually try to ask the question the ecclesiological questions what is the church How, how what is its use in the world how is it meant to interact with evil with lostness with the anti-christ sort of power at work in the world what's the church supposed to be it just made more sense to me early on because my whole life as a christian was engaged by missionaries you know people who saw themselves as going to others and not just me finding my way into a church that's cool, man. So, so what did your foray into church planning look like? You know, I did. I worked for. I came on staff with InterVarsity straight out of college and worked with them for twelve years. And so, again, I just did. We we just planted on campuses, but we planted these what we like what InterVarsity calls chapters, like these. They're, they're really churches also. I'm, I'm not supposed to say that, but the, you know, now that I have my ecclesiology <laughs> formed, they're churches. You know? So we plant these churches on, on university campuses effectively. But you know, there's, a, there's a kind of truce between the parachurch and the, and, the, uh, and the kind of formalized traditional church structures to say, you guys, we're going to outsource – at least this is how it was maybe, maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago. Like you guys go do mission. We'll, we'll support you. We'll send you money. And just don't do the sacraments. Just don't touch communion. Don't baptize people. You know, don't, don't, don't handle the, the high goods of the church. And, and then there's this sort of, I don't know, this, this peace, this, this truce between the two. But of course, that's, as you know, that's completely changing. Churches are waking up and saying, why can't we go reach university or reach kids? Or, and then also parachurches are waking up and saying, why can't we serve communion to our people? Or, well, of course, you need to baptize the people that you lead to faith. <clears throat> so I, I, I did that for a while, Peyton, but you don't have to when you do, when you're in the parachurch world, when you're in the missionary world, you're just thinking like a missionary. You, you raise support. You 
you, you have this clear context which you're trying to like live into and love those people and think every day about them. So you're just missiology is how you live. That's why you, and you, you just put off ecclesiology. You don't have to answer the question. So I went to church. I mean, I would go to church on Sundays. You know, you have to do that. It felt like I hated it. Um, in fact, it just, it was like this festering wound every single week to be sitting in these services and to feel like this makes no difference to my life, no sense to me as a missionary. In fact, it just became, I don't know, uh, some sort of obligation, some burden that I would come to this. I just had to come to this thing. And I didn't feel honored. I didn't feel seen or known or respected. You know, I'm, I'm preaching in the public square in the university world. I'm, you know, <clears throat> engaging culture, trying to shape it, seeing like a lot of fruit and growth and disciple making in our ministry. And you're just nobody in this church. You're just sitting, you're the, the guy four down on the left, you know. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. that just, that was hard. And I think eventually you have to answer the question. So I had to come to the point of saying, all right, what do, what do I really believe about the church? Mm. So after that first decade of just doing student ministry, I knew we, we have to do more. Plus student ministry is limited. You know, you see these guys graduate, they would have a certain set of values like love for the poor, care for the whole world, multi-ethnicity, you know, evangelism. And then they would try to go find churches and you just see them struggle, struggle to find a place to fit, struggle a place that had all those values um, built into them. And so they would either one, those student, those former students, those alumni would, would either acquiesce, just kind of give in to middle class life and values and just play that game, or they would, you know, stop going to church entirely. In fact, we, we one day we sat in my living room, we counted 50 people that we knew that were no longer attending any kind of church thing, but they were still passionately in love with Jesus. And in many cases, doing really frontline, cutting edge mission work, but they just could not suffer another church service. And And that's when it snapped for me that we have to do something for those people. We you have to create my love language. You know this, right? I? <laughs> like, like I know our love is forbidden, you know, but I'm just saying like, you know, finding you really attractive right now. <laughs> oh, it's a good thing. We have a little distance on the phone here. I don't want you reaching out or something. But. Yeah. But I <laughs> but, thought that was because you didn't want my cold, but you know, that, that I made it weird. Sorry. So, <laughs> So, no, so, but I mean that's that's the that's the that's the the the, uh, the wake up call for all of us, and that really what is the underground? The underground is an attempt to deal with that reality, that our highest kind of sacrifice people, like the the most, I don't know, apostolic Christians, are not, by and large, are not wanted. There's no place hmm. for them. In the yeah. traditional form. So they either just kind of sit there in the corner or they stop going all together and no one knows and no one notices. And and maybe that's a loss to the to the traditional church form. Of course it is, but also it's a loss to them because they lose they lose the community of the fellowship of the saints. You know, they're mm. they're just kind of out there. And it, and what I've seen over the years is those guys, when they're isolated and alone, they will eventually 
fail. They will eventually something will go wrong morally or right. financially right. or just emotionally. They'll start to break down. So even though they're amazing people, heroic people, mm. they cannot do it alone. They no. need that ecclesial structure around them. They just cannot be these rogue missionaries. So that's what made us step into this world of, all right, what is the church? If we were to build an ecclesial structure, a church structure from scratch, like from the bottom up with no expectations, no demands, no denominational bylaws to work from, no no expectations other than historical Orthodox Christianity. What would we do? What would it look like if it was if it was going to be you know driven by mission? The idea that we first must be effective at expanding the boundaries of the kingdom in the world. Everything would look different. Everything right. should look different. Every every single aspect of governance, of structure, of leadership, mm. uh, of relationship, of community, of worship, of the sacraments, all of those things are just a little different when you start with that premise. And that's I mean, that's the launch point, at least cognitively yeah. for us. So so what happened in you know Tampa? I mean, what was that what was that journey? Because I mean you know, I, I go to your website and I find this amazing manifesto. I've watched your video. Um, you know, the way you guys use community space. I mean, everything you're doing is to, to me, this is the church of the future. This is what it looks like. It's outside of the box. And yet having been in Europe, this is exactly the kind of thing we did. When people talked about buildings, um, they talked about community hubs. They didn't talk about church buildings anymore. You're starting yeah. to see that language over here, but um, everything shifted. Everything that you're talking about, this revolution in ecclesiology, revolution in your idea of you know, uh, missiology, all these things, everything that you're talking about, to me, this is this is basically a, a blueprint for the future in church planning. But let's look back to your past for a second. What was the story? How did how did this come about? What did you start doing? Where did where did Tampa Underground start? Well, I mean, the the first thing we did is I went to an initial group of people that we we thought were kind of had left the church. They had just disappeared. Um and I just said, look, I don't know exactly what we should do, but I feel like I feel like there's more. There should be more. This, this, by the way, contradicts the whole idea of visionary leadership, that you're supposed to have some sort of master plan and you're supposed to go to people mm -hmm. and align them to your vision. I just think that's a really antiquated idea. But <clears throat> instead, what people want to do is participate in their own destiny. They want to participate in their own redemption. Uh, and so just – we, we, I just said, I don't know what it's supposed to look like, but do you want to do it? Because I'm ready to give the rest, the, the the second half of my life to this work, if you guys are with me. And every single person said, absolutely. And then we knew we had to leave the country to get to shake the cobwebs off our brain. You know, we, of course, the American Western, North American church, we do all the publishing. We have all the money. But we don't, we actually don't have the best ideas, man. Uh, we just we just listen to our own ideas. We we think mm. we have the best ideas. Yeah. So what, we're like, how do we go to the global south? Especially if you want to care for the poor. Like if you want to design a church that that matters to the to those who suffer, to the oppressed, to the people that Jesus would have prioritized in His own ministry. We just knew we need a fresh like laboratory to 
think and dream and design. So it's a long story, but we, we settled on Manila, Philippines, and we kind of commissioned a team. There was nine, nine of us, nine adults and our collective 10 children, and we took about a year. And we just all took sabbaticals and sold stuff, and we went and lived in the slums of Metro Manila. And we just asked – we came alongside these these Filipino missionaries. I mean you talk about like ninjas or whatever. These guys are just um, – I'll, I'll never – I'll just never be worthy uh, to have walked with them. But we lived in the slums with them. We, we served them – served with them during the day, and then at night we would just sneak away. And we would brainstorm, dream, design what is now <clears throat> the underground. And the idea was to create a platform for people who had were called by God to something. And of course, our fundamental starting point is that everyone is. Every it's the priesthood of all believers. It's a revival of a sense of everyone is called to something. So. Those people that are going to wake up anyway, and they're going to go serve, you know, at-risk kids in their neighborhood, or they're going to go care for orphans, or they're going to work with people with special needs, or they just care about, I don't know, hip hop, or I, it, they have something that, that that just there's a fire in them to see this thing change or to see the kingdom come. We've got to build structures, every single structure, to serve them, to help them do that. So the the hub, you know, you talk about our. Our space, which we we have more than one, but this this big one, thirty six thousand square foot shared space, that's just one of what I see as five service platforms for these kind of people, these these missionary apostolic teams. One of them is financial services. Like this, we 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 realized early on, you got to help them with money, not just give them money, but help them manage their money for free. So we have a whole accounting department that. If you need it, and many people do, we'll do all your bookkeeping. We'll do your your 990. We'll do your donation processing. We'll do all. We'll do your payroll, all that for free. If you're going to go do something brave in mission, then we're on your side. So, financial services, one media services, all the you need a website, you need a graphic, you need a, a logo, you need all, all that stuff. We have a department. They'll just do that for these guys for free. Um, <clears throat> training, coaching department like a really um, robust training system, which you just opt in. If, if you need something or want something, you come and get it. But then facilities is part of that too, because we realize people need an office or they need a place to have a conference or they need uh, just a, a quiet place to work. So we have this, this huge co-work space, like mm. maybe 10,000 square feet where people can come. And there's about 70 missionaries at office here almost every day <clears throat> and it creates this this buzz this this synergy um i feel like a dork just using that word but uh you know <laughs> the <laughs> it does i mean it's like you because okay you're let's say you're you work in the inner city and the, your team is three people and you know you, you might be officing by your bed or something you know your total budget is like thirty thousand dollars a year for all of you and all of a sudden we come alongside you you have an accountant you have you have graphics department. You can make a video. You you have an office. You have uh, you know all access to other people that are working. All of a sudden, you just feel more legitimate, and that's that's what we want to do, man. So the the that's cool. The physical plant, the physical plant is just one expression of a redesigning of 
the use of the resources of the church, the, the, the centralized infrastructure of church to serve, empower, release, I don't know, help people not fail or, or, or stumble or, or give up uh, who, who want to actually be the church out in the world. Not come to the church, but be the church out in the world. <clears throat> right. So yeah. let me ask you, is the um, is the church plant then, or all the things you're talking about, obviously some people would see, oh, this is a source of income, you know, revenue we could, we could take in. But you're giving out. Is this all supported? I mean, because you've got a really big space. Is that supported by people within the community that are supporting that? Or is it people from without the community that have a vision towards what you do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, because, because there's a lot of skepticism, man. Like if we, if, if, uh, if we adopt in some new ministry, like they didn't come from the underground community, they're always like, what's the catch? You know, what's the catch? What, I don't understand. How do I get all this stuff? I mean, people don't believe it, man. They don't believe, uh, that it's better to give than receive or something, right. but it does, it, it, it does sort of boggle the mind. How would, how would we financially do this? And maybe this is also like a tribute to my parachurch um, experience because, you know, we all raise money. So my staff, which is maybe 20 people, we all raise money like missionaries. Mm. So we're very little burden on the local community. But then we also ask the core missionaries that are part of the underground. So the underground here, at least in Tampa is, you know, I don't know, maybe 300, 350 what we would call elders. So they're people who are leading ministries. Right. And then of course they lead, I mean, in some cases, hundreds of people in one ministry. Um, what we call micro churches aren't small. They're actually can be pretty robust and big, but some of them are small. Some of them are like 12 people that serve food to the homeless twice a week. And that's what they do. And that's what they're called to do. And we make no distinction between them and the bigger churches. Like yeah. they're all, <clears throat> legitimate to us. And so all those those leaders, they have a common purse. They put money in like they would if they went to a traditional church. They'll they'll give some money. And whatever that number is, that's what we use for half of that we use for operations to help run this hub and create services for them and so on. Um, but then the other half we give away. We we turn that into grants that we give, you know around the world, but also locally. And because if you're going to take up missionaries money, yeah. uh, that's the other thing that killed me about going to a traditional church is they, they wanted my money and I'm making $20,000 a year pouring out your life and living in the inner city. I have, mm. I have all these kids, you know, and it's like, if I'm going to give my money, which I should, I should give as much of my money as I possibly can. I just wanted it to, to be valuable for the poor, for the kingdom, not just to go to the renovations of the bathroom um, or a new light system or something like that. <clears throat> it's just very hard. So for us, the burden is we have to spend that money very frugally, their money, very frugally. And we only have to take what we absolutely need. And then we have to give away as much as we can to the poor. So we're about 50% of the money we take from them, we give away. But the truth is we're, we're, we're close to a $2 million operation. That's not enough. They, they might, they might collect $500,000 a year, that common purse. And it helps to run the things that they need, but we have to raise more money than that. We have to raise more money for 
other projects uh, for our own support as staff. And I, I like it. I mean, mm. I, I want our people to feel like they're missionaries. So they yeah. have to go and get like people who friends of the underground <laughs> who are outside of the underground who have money, who are maybe, I don't know, have some sort of calling on their life to be benefactors or philanthropists. We have a bunch of people like that. And if it wasn't for them, I don't know that we'd be able to, you know, pull off some of the things that we've been able to pull off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome, man. Well, you know, those partners, man, they they definitely keep it going. I mean, as a mm-hmm. as a missionary overseas for a number of years, man, you're 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 speaking my love language again. You know, being <laughs> a poor missionary has shaped so much of what I do and how mm-hmm. I operate. And, you know, it's funny because I work with um, my partner on the magazine and the podcast is an entrepreneur who is very well off. Um, he, hmm. he works for it. He goes and gets it, but he makes a killing. And, you know, I, it's been a healthy partnership because that, that mindset, how we do things has, you know, I still as, that mindset of a poor church planner has stayed with me and it's shaped our mission and vision. And I can honestly say that's been the one thing that Pete has said is I'm here to serve the planner. I'm not here to make money. And I think yeah. that is so rare nowadays where, as you said, you know, we're, you and I meet people all the time in, in the kind of work we do that's, you know, we've got to hear, I was telling someone this morning, I can't see some of what I see on a regular basis and not hear the echoes of the conversations I have where they go, well, religion's just about making money. I, mm. I can't, I can't reconcile what I'm seeing. And sometimes I'll tell my wife, I'll say, I, I just need to get completely out of ministry sometimes to keep my sanity and just keep it pure. <laughs> Because otherwise I get around people or, you know, even, even on this show, sometimes I'll have people and, you know, it, it'll expose me to the, the best thing about being a missionary was not being exposed to, mm. to much of the money grabbing that goes on in the name of mission, ministry and Jesus. And so, um, man, I, I just think that's awesome. Um, look, we're, we're running out of time, which is really a shame because, Brian, I think we're going to need a part two with you, and I, I think we need to talk about you've got a theology of place and space. Now, I don't know what it is, but I I recognize that you have arrived at some of the very same ideas and convictions on how to use space as many of us in Europe um, in a very post-Christian, post uh, you know, I would say church, um, world that we found ourselves in where, you know, evangelicals were 0.03% of the population, I always tell, but, or sorry, 0.3% of the population, which is a third of a percent of the population. When you start getting down to those numbers, you have to engage everything differently. Nothing that works here, quote unquote, works there and really you're not about things working you're about reaching people and so um that's another conversation i'm going to want to have but before we do that um because that's going to have to be for another episode i need to ask you who have been your biggest influences 
in your thoughts regarding what we've talked about so far today? Well, what a what a penetrating question. Uh, it's, it's almost like you feel, uh, I don't know, it's a very personal, almost private question. Well, it's um, not going in a good yeah. place. I do have to warn you. I'm setting you up for something. So, <laughs> okay. you know, answer at your own risk. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think early on, the, sort of the, the what shook me out of my middle class malaise would have been someone like Gustavo Gutierrez, and even being in in uh, the mountains of Peru where he works, and um, and and that you know who's considered the father of Latin American liberation theology. And when while I wouldn't call myself a liberationist in that that exact same sense, I, I find him to be very biblical, and yet reading parts of the Bible that we just weren't reading. Um, I think moving on, you know, people like David Bosch or Leslie Newbegin became, I, I don't know, like a pitchfork that you you start saying, okay, I'm a missionary. That's who I am. That's how I see. This is the way I read the Bible. It's the way I understand God's call upon my life and maybe what the church is meant to be. Um, those things obviously I mean, those guys, I don't know, they, they give language to your heart and a theology and a framework. I mean, on a personal level, um, I've been really, I've been really encouraged by my relationship with, with people like Alan Hirsch. Uh, there's a guy called Floyd, Floyd McClung, who's now quite sick, but, um, just being a young man and he's just really like a father in the Lord and his, his whole life has been mission and uh, former international director of youth of the mission and working in Amsterdam, Afghanistan, Africa. So, you know, th there's personal people like that also that have had, I think a pretty important Im impact. And then intervarsity, just being a part of intervarsity of parachurch or a collegiate ministry, which cares about the mind but is also trying to engage culture, change a place, have that focus. That's had, I mean, those people have had a, a big influence on me too. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. Cause um, you know, this probably should be a question we have on a serious note more often, but the place I was going with that was, and I'm trying to pick out of all those guys. We got David Bosch. We've never done him before. So um, some of our listeners probably don't know him. They, they they know of Newbegin. Obviously, they know Alan, but we do this with Alan probably too much, and we love Alan. So, um, <laughs> we're, we're going to pick... We'll pick David Bosch, and if you guys don't know David Bosch, go Google him, and you'll get a kick out of this. So, Brian Sanders of Tampa Underground, if you were to have an underground fight club match against <laughs> David Bosch... Oh, come on, man. Who... <laughs> <laughs> who would win? Fight. Oh my between who? Between Bosch and, and me? Yeah. Or who? Yeah, no, oh, you and you and him, man. It's like, you know, oh, cage yeah. match, shirts off, you know. Oh yeah. Well, if it's theology, if we had some sort of No, no, this is fist fight. Wits, this is no win. theology. This fist is fight? pure just no, you're gonna yeah. punch each other. Who's gonna win? Yeah. No, he's not. No, none of those guys can beat me in a fight that's yes. right <laughs> i was so hoping you'd say that yes we are blood brothers i'm there's telling no you chance. there's no chance yeah all right that's that, and, that's uh, that rough childhood that's that, that still <laughs> <laughs> as we say in in urban long beach that guy is saved but still dangerous so that's our uh sbsd you know save but still dangerous don't mess with him 
He's, yeah, I say he's, I'm a lapsed, I'm a lapsed uh, pacifist. I'm a, yeah, he's justified, a, but he's not very sanctified yet. I wouldn't mess with him. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, cool, man. My my train is gonna signal me like the end of you know Mister Rogers' neighborhood that uh, <laughs> it's time to go back to uh, the very real, real world. And uh, so we leave this time. It hasn't been make believe. It's just been fun. And uh, we've had Brian Sanders on here to talk, just really touching I, the tip of the iceberg of the cool stuff that Tampa Underground does. If you guys want to see a movement that I think in many ways um, breaks the mold and is just kind of missionally postured to be something that um, is is way ahead of the curve in America, um, definitely go check out uh, tampaunderground.com. I got that right, right? Was it Tampa? You did. did. Tampaunderground.com. With that, now that people use org all the time, that throws me off. But it's tampaunderground.com. And my guest has been Brian Sanders. Brian, thanks for coming on to Hardcore Church Planning. Great talking to you, man. All right. Well, Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.